Right. John this D. Is, Sorry, go ahead. You, <laughs> I had nothing. And so as always, in the meantime, nope, that's dumb. Ladies and gentlemen, take off your shoes. Put on your favorite hoodie. Pour yourself a nice, crisp glass of gin. Because it's time to talk tall to me. Hi, everybody. I am Nick McGill. And I'm Omen Said. And this is Talk Tall to Me, the podcast in which Nick McGill and I discuss sequentially every single song that prog rock band Jethro Tull ever recorded episode by episode. This week, we are talking about kind of a, a triple header. We're going to discuss Round and One for John Gee. And our final song tonight, Love Story. That's right. But we're going to first start with the two instrumentals, uh, Round and One for John Gee. Round is only a minute long, and it sounds like if you listen to them um, quickly enough side by side, it sounds like Round just flows right into One for John Gee. Omen. Let's start with round. Sure. Um, what do you think? What do you think about round? It's quick. It's nice. It's quick and nice. You know, um, honestly, if I passed it in the street, I would not look twice. I, um, I, I feel like, I feel like the entire album, this was, has, has kind of a tension in it between the, the really brilliant creative prowess of Ian Anderson and what he was able to get out of his fellow mu- musicians and kind of a kind of a heavy scholastic approach. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately for me, this one falls into the, the latter of those two categories because I, um, it is called round. It is literally around and I don't have that much more to say about it. It's a, a single, a single round of a round. It's a round it's, of a round. It's it's a single of a round instance of it. Yeah. Um. I don't. I don't terribly mind it. To be honest, it's nice. It's a little mesmeric. Um. But for for it to be at the end, it feels just kind of like a wind down to me, especially um without having, without taking the bonus tracks into consideration. Say this is the end of the album. You you you're you're done with side B. This is right. it. And it's it's a nice little um it's a nice little digestif I think. I'm going to posit a theory, and that is that once they had recorded a certain number of things, they realized that they couldn't get a whole nother song onto the B side of the vinyl. And I just imagine the engineer being like, "We've got a minute left." I'm a, that's I'm a that's... strange professional actor. That is a real accent. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and I, I mean, I can easily imagine them just being like, blum, 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 here we are. We're going to play this round. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that's valid. I mean, you're paying for six inches of vinyl on either side. Why not take advantage of it? Six inches of vinyl, that is the name of my burlesque show. You can see me in uh, see me in Connecticut. Yes. It's a, a booming place for um, burlesque. Um, I, I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it. I didn't hate it either. And it's, and, you know, and it's not, it's not, it's not my place or our place really to judge, you know, the, you know, 
is this song the best or the worst? But, but um, for me, it just, it just comes across as uninspired. Hmm. Well, I mean, th- that's, it's not the only one on the album that feels that way. No, I agree. Right. Um, but who, who is, is this, this is an, this is interesting. The, um, for being the shortest song on the album by 55 seconds at a, at a minute and three, um, yeah. the writers, the, the writer's credits, Anderson, Abrams, Bunker, Cornick, and Ellis. You know why? I, I suspect that that is the case is, and I was just about to talk to the, about this, is that I, I think that it was 100% improvisational. I bet that that was a totally uh, in the studio, to, like 100% improv. I don't think that was rehearsed at all. In which case, they would all have to be writers on it because they all created it. That's super valid. Yeah, that makes so much sense. And I think that that is something that is amazing about this album is that they are, there is so much improvisation in it. Whereas, you know, as we get into some of the later albums, there's always that sense of improvisation, especially from Anderson, but it does start to take on a more written, a more rehearsed, polished feeling to it. And this has a lot of that, um, that show of talent. I think the reference of the, the improv, the feel of improv, um, to me, it's, it's interesting because there are any number of live albums, bootleg or, or official or whatever. And we've seen them live X number of times and, and fill X fill in that integer as you would, um, (laughs) write in to factlessmoms.com and fill in your number of X. Um, how many times you have seen Jethro Tull live? That's right. Because I'm on five. I, uh, I've seen them live twice. Only twice? Yeah. It wasn't three. Am I kicked off the podcast? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> Does it... This is Nick McGill. Does... With, uh, talk talk to yourself. Does it count that I've seen the DVD of them play live? I, that's got to count for something. Well, then it counts for me too, though. So, all right. <laughs> so the point. The point, the the improv will say um, you can see them live any number of times and you can listen to any number of the, the live albums. And there's always that huge flute breakdown that that Anderson does. And it always ends the exact same way that sounds like it should be improv. And if you see him for the first time or hear that album for the first time, you think, oh, that's that's clever and that's brilliant and it's beautiful. But if you hear it enough, the exact same thing. It's where he runs out of the air that, and he starts snorting. It's a da 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 da, da, da. and then he goes into Pop Goes the Weasel, and he's been doing it since the seventies. True, but I do think that that he has this skill, and I think that here it's on display. He has the skill as an improviser that you know, even if even if you know, I mean, how many how many shows has he done in his career? That literally thousands. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um. I think that you know once you once you discover something that works, of course you're going to repeat it. But, yeah. um, but there's also you know there was also the the moment later on in his career when he was playing with a string orchestra mm. outdoors, and and he actually makes a reference to this in one of the songs that we'll get to way way down the road. But a gust of wind literally blew his shoot his uh, sheet music away, and he was supposed to be playing this you know this big this big orchestral piece, and he just winged it convincingly and it was like the, you know one of the best performances ever yeah way down the road with a with a string orchestra or 
on track number 10 of the first album, he's got the chops. They're there. Yeah. And the imagination. And the imagination. And it's even more impressive to me on uh, song number 10, because at that point, he didn't know where to put his fingers. He didn't know technique. Same could be said of all of us. My high school at that age, man, I'm just walking into you. You are. Are you chewing ice? Is that what that crunching noise is? (laughs) Um, uh, (laughs) And the nice thing with this track is that, um, you know, he's not improving by himself. Also describes my high school career. There it is. And, um, but he, you know, everyone in that room is clearly making up and, uh, is it the most brilliant thing that we've ever heard? Maybe not, but is it amazing in its own right? Yes, it is. I'm curious. Could they have done that before they recorded like song number two? Or did they, in recording this album, did they gel that much? I don't know. This is 1000% speculation. It seems. <laughs> I'm sure they could. I'm sure they could. I'm sure they did that song before this. Well, I, and I suspect that, um, even if they didn't do literally this song before this recording session, I suspect that that the vibe that was in a lot of those clubs where they were playing was one that demanded sometimes filling a couple of minutes yeah. in improvisation. And I think that, you know, that was quite in at that time. Yeah. And also we need to remember that by the time they recorded this and it came out, they were touring. So they had right. more than 10 songs. And we can see that by looking at the the lineup of um, living living in the past. Those are almost all from '68, right? I think that is way more than I expected for us to get out of round. Um, <laughs> to be honest, yeah, totally. So you want to hop over into one for John Gee, or do you have anything else to to close out round? I do not. I kind of want to. I want to put it on repeat and just let it go for like. 10 minutes and see if it's really good or painful. I mean, it could be like pleasant background. I don't think. um... Okay. Everyone pause. This is going to be an extra long (laughs) podcast because there's going to be 10 minutes of round on. (laughs) I'm so sorry. Um, (laughs) Let's, uh, let's listen to the next track. From its first jazz-fueled, intoxicating riffs to its last anime-style schoolgirl giggle. (laughs) This song (laughs) has me. I love it. It's a lot of fun. It's so engaging. It's, um, I think it's, it's more, maybe it's what they wanted to do for track number 10, but it's too long. That's the way that I, that's what I wish they would have done. That's how I want to remember. That's like, that's the last taste that I want in my mouth. Yeah, that that's, it's, it's a really nice button. It's a really nice closer. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's, it's fun. It's peppy. It feels, it still has that. It still has a feel like a round. It still has a feel like there's um, a certain degree of technique there. Yeah. Before you brought up the, oh, maybe they only had like a minute left on the vinyl I wrote in my notes, I said, why would they split this at all? Why wouldn't they go from round directly into this? Right. Or, or just do that. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's, it's nice. It's refreshing. It is a better digestif than, than round was or is. 
it certainly tempers the stomach differently. This this is a deepest thief that is going to send me uh, dancing down the street. What is it? What is it so? What is it that's so awesome about it? Um, I'm glad you asked. I um. Hey, Omen. Yeah. What is it that's so awesome about one for John Gee? You know, it is just so well balanced. In some of the songs, I feel like you can you can hear the kind of egos in the room in a way, and in this one, it's like they all just decided to show up for work. Yeah, and Abrams is really really showing his jazz background and chops, um, both with the the lead guitar moments and with the with the the rhythm guitar, all those beautiful jazz chords. Ian Anderson is is melting it but not in such a way that it takes over and we even get um a nice little show off of uh glenn campbell's work is that his name cornick you're talking about the bass glenn cornick (laughs) we even get a really great display of glenn cornick's prowess on the on the bass which is something that doesn't come through with um a lot of this album like a rhinestone cowboy. Glenn Campbell is a country music legend, by the way. I knew he was someone. Yeah. Um, he was the host of the Glenn Campbell Good Time Hour. How convenient that they found a guy named Glenn Campbell to host the Glenn <laughs> Campbell. Get, get, out, get out of here. Um, so this leaves me with this leaves me with a question this song does. Yeah. Does it ever indeed? Yes, it does. The question is this. Who is John Gee? Okay. So I did a little poking around, um, and I found three Sounds options. Sounds like my college days. I, I'm so sorry. Yeah, that one was a stretch. It's gross. Um, so we've got, we've got three options for who John Gee is. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. Ooh, yeah. yeah th- this will be a game. We'll play a game called... Who <laughs> is the real John Gee? <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, we don't have the rights to that song. Um, I'm sorry. Will you sign me the rights for that so I can use it for this? Yes. Okay, good. I give that to you. Okay, so John Gee is A, a Christian hip-hop artist from South Mississippi in in 2018. Oh, no, you know, I've I've got four options, actually. John Gee is B, a Mormon apologist and Egyptologist at Brigham Young University, known for his writings in support of the Book of Abraham in 2018. The in support of, of m- the Book of Abraham? Mick Abraham? Oh <gasps> there it is. So so we have so for option B we have the um the Mormon apologist. Mm-hmm. I mean, I guess Mormons need to be apologized. Four? Let's. We can probably cut that. Uh, well, I'm going to look up what a Mormon apologist is. Um, we, we we hereby apologize to all of the um, all of our Mormon fans out there. That's true. That's true. We do. You know, I nearly got a gig. Uh, by nearly, I mean that I didn't get a call back. But it was really fun. Um, doing a narration part, like a like an on screen narrator for uh, some of the Mormon mysteries. What are the Mormon mysteries? Is that like the Hardy Boys, but with Mormons? <laughs> or Nancy Drew with Mormons, but they can't mix. They certainly can't. They have to wear. No, it, it's like, um, it's like, what is baptism after death? What is baptism after death? 
I'm glad you're watching this film to know what that is. Let me tell you. Talk Mormon apologies to me. Um, <laughs> sorry, this is such a such a sidetrack. So, so he's a Mormon apologist. Mormon apologist. Um, working at Brigham Young University and Egyptologist. That's super important. Yeah, they want those professors to do everything these days. Yep. No rest for the untenured masses. That's true. Um, this one could actually be feasible because it's not in the future of when this song was written. Option C. John Gee was a British bobsledder who competed in the four-man event at the 1928 Winter Olympics. Okay. And D... A club secretary turned manager um, who was a pivotal part of the team who made the marquee the most important venue in the history of pop music. What? In the 1960s. Oh. He was a journalist and manager who helped make the marquee club in Soho the epicenter of British rock in the 1960s. <gasps> I think it was... We're going we're gonna to let... We're going to give our listeners a chance to answer this question for themselves. Was John Gee A... The Christian hip hop artist from Mississippi in 2015. B. 18. He's present day. I'm so sorry. He's contemporary. S- sorry about that, John Gee. Um, B. Was John Gee the Mormon apologist who works at Brigham Young University? C. The British bobsled Earth. team member? <laughs> or D. The club manager for the marquee in 1960s London? Ding, 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 ding. You've all got it correct. Yes, it was the Bob's letter. It was the Bob's letter, yep. No, but that's amazing. So so is this someone that is um, John Gee, the, the marquee owner, uh, someone that they would have interacted with? He was a manager and journalist for them. So I imagine, yeah, absolutely. Um, he it says he championed groups like 10 years after. Haven't heard of him. Um, <laughs> writing the liner notes for their eponymous 1967 debut bloody marvelous um oh i think he he called them bloody marvelous yeah and jethro tall who named the jazz flavored instrumental b-side of their sixth second single one for john gee that's the song we're talking about can you believe it he was a huge proponent of tall that's amazing wow what a cool treat if one for john gee was a cool treat what cool treat would it be? Ooh, that is an excellent question, Nick. Um, dang. So the thing that I'm imagining, I, I'm not, I'm not sure if it exists or not. Um, we'll make it exist. But have you heard of chocolate lava cake? Yeah. Okay. Have you heard of baked Alaska? I have. I imagine this song as a baked Alaskan version of a chocolate lava cake one that is frosty frosty cold on the outside and then as you cut into it it more or less explodes molten chocolate all over the place um but it's like a spicy mexican spice chocolate with peppers in it that is what that song is that's um baked molten mexican alaska that's it's it's multinational. Yes. Um, it is a wide variety of flavors. Yes. And textures. Yes. And, uh, consistencies and temperatures. And like this song, it is balanced and well composed. I doubt one of those. <laughs> 
Um, just to just to go back to to John Gee and the um, the Marquee Club. The Marquee helped to launch the careers of the Moody Blues, the Who, Elton John, and David Bowie. Wow! So it was it was pretty pretty super fancy. So really, it's not just that Jethro Tull owes a lot to John Gee. It's it's really that we all do. Sure. Yeah. I can't imagine a world if we didn't have Elton John or Bowie, you know? Well, you know what I have to say to that? Here's one for John Gee. <laughs> and actually, the anniversary of Bowie's death was just recently. I'm most assuredly cutting that. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah i saw the anniversary of uh, bowie's death by way of uh the instagram of a person that i went to high school with who always posts um her nails when she gets them done and she has them in themes i don't know where i don't know what place offers a service like this but her recent nails were com- were con- commemorating the death of david bowie yeah, I think if I if I had that as an option to do my nails, um, right? What else would you get? There's nothing else out there. <laughs> so that was uh, that was one for John Key. Anything else on that? You good with that? Yes. Yeah, I don't have much else via notes, um, but I think I think it's good. It's nice. It's tasty. It shows us what. It shows us what round could have been, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, so let's, uh, I guess let's go right into their, um, oh, a rather strict and staid figure with a dry sense of humor. Gee insisted that bands should be in their dressing room 15 minutes before they were due on stage. Not an easy task since the Marquis didn't have an alcohol license until 1970. And musicians tended to linger at La Chase, the nearby drinking club run by Jack Berry, who replaced him as manager that year. Wow. Right? That's just... That's crazy. Yeah. They, were, they were across the street less than 15 minutes before they had to go on. And by they, we don't mean Jethro Tull necessarily. Most of the, the, the party animal... Yeah. Musicians. I wonder what the party vibe was with the with the with that first tall lineup. I wonder if if it was a more um a more drinky crowd than as we as we've said in the past, Ian Anderson is sort of famously um what's the word? Uh moderate. He's aggressively moderate in his in his alcohol consumption historically. So you're you're wondering if the rest of the band was was more drinky? Yeah. I mean none of them none of the others have been as or at all vocal about it. So I mean yeah, we don't really know. It's really just speculation. Um, yeah. But it, it it maybe that's maybe that's why Abrams was out of there. Well, who's to say? Who's to say? He was deep into Molly at that time. Oh yes. And weren't we all? <laughs> Hey kids, Nick here. Um, You may be asking yourself, in fact you probably are, what's up with Love Story? Why is it not on here? Turns out we were 
definitely not expecting to speak so long about round and one for John Gee. So, um, as an added bonus, we've broken it up. So this week is just going to be round and one for John Gee. Next week, love story and surprise, we're going to talk about a very special track that we didn't even know about. You will get to experience in your ear holes our brand new surprise. And then we'll go from there. The following week is going to be Christmas song. And that's it for This Was. So come on back in a week. We'll pick up exactly where we left off. Um, do the, the standard thing that we ask you to do. Subscribe, rate, give us an awesome review. We'll read it if it's five stars and it's funny. Um, or heartfelt. We're okay with heartfelt. This is Talk Told Me. That was Omen. I'm Nick. We'll see you next week. Thanks a lot. Jethro Tull is, in fact, opposite. Let me take that back. Jethro Tull. <laughs> oh, hey there. Talk Tull to Me is a proud member of the Feckless Momes Audio Network.